This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. Now listen, before I, um, before I begin, I want you to know that what I'm going to share with you tonight is just a small version of what I'm going to unpack more on Sunday. And it's probably a, it actually is an, it's an incredibly important message because it deals with some of the things that we add to the gospel that unfortunately leads to many people thinking they're saved, but they're not truly being saved. And it all has to do with this whole idea of following Jesus. And as you remember, as we were going through this, uh, Peter has uh, now been restored by Jesus. Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And then he says in verse number 18, Most assuredly I say to you that when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you stretched out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And by this he signified by what death he would glorify him. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, The message he gives to all of us, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And Jesus basically said, that's none of your business. He said, if I will, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Then he adds this personal note, instead of just follow me, you follow me. And so the question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And again, if you go on the internet and you look at sermons, they say following Jesus means living like Jesus and acting like Jesus and thinking like Jesus and having the mind of Christ, which means you read your Bible and you pray for the sick and you go to church and, and all that is true, but it's much deeper than that. You know, it's, it's much deeper than, than just trying to emulate Jesus in those kind of manners. I think one of the reasons why the scripture never gives us a physical description of Jesus, it doesn't say that he was five foot 11, 185 pounds with, well, he wouldn't have blue eyes, but with blue eyes like all the English guys do and blonde hair. Because what we would do is we would try to follow Jesus by looking like Jesus because it's so much easier to do that than it is to live like him. But the idea of, of following Jesus has to do with something far more profound than that. Several places in Scripture, the Lord says, I want you to follow me. And, and again, what does that mean? If I say, um, uh, if Jesus came and says, Steve, I want you to follow me, I, I, what does that mean? Does that mean I follow you all the time? Or do I follow you some of the time? Do I follow you in just areas I'm willing to give over to you? Or, or do I follow you in all these areas? If, if, if I disagree or if my life's heading in a different direction than your life is heading, is it okay if I only follow you on my days off? Or do I have to follow you 
in all things. If I have a sincerely held conviction or I have a need, a a deep-seated need that doesn't seem to get met in the flesh by following you, is it okay if I meet that need myself and then follow you the rest of the time? What does it mean to follow you? And one of the problems is, is that we, in our culture today, in our generation, we have added so many things to the Scripture, we've added so many things and taken so many things away from the Gospel that we've taken the idea of following Jesus and placed it in an area where we feel somewhat comfortable with it. And so today I was asking the Lord, you know, show me, show me something that can kind of describe the time in which we live rather than going back to Revelation 3. And uh, I, was in, I was in Proverbs 30, since today's 30, so I want you to look at that. And I want to share just a, a couple highlights here to give you an idea of how we have twisted in our culture what it means to follow Christ. Proverbs 30. We're just going to look at maybe the first 14 verses. You're going to go through this kind of quickly. The word of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ucal, and we can talk about what those guys, who those guys are later, but here's what he says. He says, surely I am more stupid than any man. The word means brutish. I'm brutish, I'm senseless, especially when it comes to the things of God and also the things of money and the things of the world. And I do not have an understanding of a man. I have neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. When it talks about having an understanding, I do not have the understanding of man. It's talking about the discernment of man, the the intelligence of man. I haven't learned or haven't been taught or I haven't exercised in that area. I haven't learned the wisdom uh, nor I have the knowledge of the Holy One. In other words, I'm just, a, I'm just an ordinary guy trying to live my life the best way I can in the world. And then the Lord shows us the foolishness of that by comparing our wisdom and our life with that of the Holy One of Israel. And he begins by describing who this Holy One is in verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? You? No. Who has gathered the winds in his fist? You implied, no. Who has bound the waters in a garment? You, no. Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? If you know, do you even know who this God is that we're supposed to be serving? Well, how am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to know the wisdom of God? How am I supposed to to learn knowledge of the Holy One? Verse 5, it follows. Every word of God is pure. And this word for pure is different than the word you have in verse number 12, which is also in, in, in the English pure. This word for pure means it's refined, it's tested by fire. Every word of God has been attacked, it's been tested, it's been refined like silver, and it has been found to be pure and unadulterated. And he, this God, is a shield not to everyone, but he's a shield to those who put their trust in him. So what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to trust him. And do not add, verse 6, to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Do not add to his words. So when do we, when do, we do that? Well, all right, I'll give you a couple examples. Someone comes up to you and says, um, say they're a Muslim, 
and they live in a Muslim country, predominantly Muslim country. They come from a Muslim family, a devout Muslim family, and you're sharing Christ with them, and you can tell inside of them that they're beginning to to move towards Christ, and they're beginning to count the cost of what that's going to mean if they come to Christ. You know, the family's going to reject them. If the family finds out that they're Christians, that they're they're probably going to kill them. And so they ask you, and they say, well, how do I become a believer? What does that mean? How do I follow Jesus? And so what do we tell them? Well, if you will simply ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, and if you will believe that he died on the cross for your sins and raised um, from the grave on the third day and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father and coming again in glory, and if you'll ask Jesus into your heart, you will be saved. If you will acknowledge certain facts that somehow there'll be this transaction that takes place, and it might, this transaction that takes place, which will secure you to God forever. To say the sinner's prayer, right? Do you know where the sinner's prayer is found in Scripture? Nowhere. Do you know where it it says in Scripture to ask Jesus into your heart? Nowhere. That's stuff we've added. And what we've done is we've taken the Romans 9, 10, 9, and 10 passage, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we sprang from that, the whole concept of the sinner's prayer, just asking him to into our heart, acknowledging some historical facts. But the idea of the Romans 10, 9, and 10 passage is about understanding and embracing the lordship of Christ. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or or confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, as kurios, as all the things that are involved in it, he is Lord, I am servant. He is Lord, I am slave. He is master. I'm the one that follows the commands. He's the one that has life and death over me. I have nothing but what comes from him. But we, we blow that off because we find it so much easier to get people just to say the prayer. Anybody, anybody you ever allegedly won to Christ by having them say the prayer not in Christ today? I have. You know, it's like, what happened? It, you know, it was kind of a fleshly thing they were holding on to. And, and we add to his word not understanding what it means to, to truly be a Christian. Jesus never said, I want you to come and ask me into your heart. Instead, his calling is to death. His calling is to die. And if we ever presented that as part of the gospel presentation, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is true if you view wonderful from his vantage point, but that doesn't mean wonderful necessarily from your vantage point. Because some people get saved, have cancer. Some people get saved, are martyred for their faith. Some people get saved and their life in the flesh is far worse after they came to Christ than before they did come to Christ. Paul's a classic example. I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ. You know, hey, Follow me as I follow Jesus. You know, I've been whipped all 39 lashes so many times. Why don't you come join me? No, God didn't promise me that. God promised prosperity. God promised blessings. God promised that I'm the head and not the tail. And, all you know, every good thing's going to happen to me. And, and my father has cattle on a thousand hills and all that. It's all about me. Well, we've added that to the gospel. The fact is, is none of that is promised by Christ. Instead, 
Although Jesus didn't say it, Paul did. He said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, do you remember? Will suffer persecution. And so we've added this to make the gospel seem palatable in our culture. And a lot of people come to faith in Christ believing that's what it's all about. And they may not even be saved. Do not add to his words, verse 6, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. What am I supposed to do? Two things I request of you. God, do me a favor. Uh, would you grant two of my wishes? Sure, Steve. What are they? Well, Lord, would you, would you like give me a bunch of money so I don't have to worry about money anymore? Would you give me health? Would you give me, you know, make my teeth straight without having to go to the dentist? Would you find a wonderful, beautiful girl for me to be married to? Will you give me all the things that I want? Because in our culture, Christianity is about us. It's not what it says here. It says two things I request from you. I request God. Well, what are they? Number one, remove falsehood and lies from me. Falsehood and lies about who you are, about who I am, about what purpose of life is. Remove those from me. And number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, what person asks for that? You know what? I don't want the raise. I don't want to move to a bigger house. I don't need a new car. Let me just stay right where I'm at. Why would you want to do that? Because it's not about me. It's about him. Look at his reasoning. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me that you have allotted to me. Why? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I don't need him. Or I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. God, you know who I am. Just give me what's allotted to me, what you want me to have because you are the sovereign one and I am your slave because I don't want to do anything, anything to, um, to profane your name. As a matter of fact, I don't even want to profane the name of other believers. I don't want to say anything contrary to somebody else who may view things differently from me. Verse number 10 says, Do not malign a servant to his master. Do not accuse or slander a servant. And this could be a believer and the master could be Christ or it could be a, you know, an employee and employer kind of relationship. Why don't I want to do that lest he curse you and you be found guilty? Well, Lord, this isn't the way we think. We've got these big polemic networks out there that just want to criticize everything out there and we're right and everybody's wrong, but, but that's, this is the generation in which we live. And look what he says in verse 11 through 14 about our generation. Is there is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. Uh, ours, would you agree? Take our mother and our father and lock them up in nursing homes because we don't have time for them and don't have room for them and don't want to burden ourselves with them to take care of them when they get older. There's a generation that is pure. Now, this word means clean and genuine that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. That's the Revelation chapter 3 passage. You say that you are rich and wealthy and need nothing, but really you haven't been washed from your filthiness, meaning you're poor, wretched, blind, and naked. Verse 13, there is a generation, oh, how lofty are the eyes. By the way, that word means elevated. It's like this. Hmm, Really? told Karen that we're going to talk about rolling the eyes today. It's kind of what it is, lofty in their own eyes. Everybody else is stupid except us. 
There's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There's a generation who's just wicked and vile and mean. You don't think so? You can watch all the murderous things that are said on Facebook about people who disagree with you. And by the way, when trashing somebody who disagrees with you on Facebook no longer satisfies, people like that take it to the streets. It is in our future. It says there is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. The poor here, this word means those that are suffering, afflicted, oppressed, and poor. And needy is how we would define poor. It means those that are poor are lacking in material possessions. And I mean, this is our generation. And Jesus tells us in the church who've been raised in this kind of generation to follow him. To what? I mean, what does it mean to follow Christ? Following is a classic quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, was murdered for his faith uh, in uh, 1945, just a few months before uh, the end of World War II. And here's what he says about the calling of a Christian. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Scripture's full of that. If you're friend, if you want to be friend with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. It is that dying to the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. The old man has died, the new man has been born again. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Continuing, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And here's this quote. When when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You ever heard that before? Continuing. It may be a death like that of the first disciple who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Christ Jesus, the death of the old man at his call. When Christ calls us to follow him, what he's telling us to do is not that he will make your life better, is what we peddle today. You know, he'll, he'll bless you and make your life better. Therefore, church is a cool place to come because here's all the things he's going to do to you. And if you'll listen to, if you'll listen to most of the sermons by pastors that have huge followings, they're all about you. What God is going to do for you because I want to come. I want to hear how good I am. I was listening. I couldn't believe this. Sunday morning, I was listening to Bethlehem. I was watching the, the live broadcast they have. And Dickie's a friend of mine. And, he does this every time he preaches. Hey, turn around to somebody sitting next to you and say, boy, aren't you good looking today? You know, I mean, that's supposed to make the crowd feel good about themselves. Like, what, what does that have to do with worship the Lord? Boy, you're good looking today. You know, and I mean, go ahead. Because it's all about us. When Christ calls us, he literally calls us to come and die. And the calling back then is the same calling we have Today, he doesn't call, he doesn't, he didn't die to make your life better. He didn't die his, to, to give you 
ease from your physical pain because everybody that God heals of cancer in their 40s will at some point in time die of something. True? So even if God heals you, it's still only temporary. He didn't call you and he didn't, he didn't die on the cross so you and I would have money and be able to live a life of luxury and ease, although he does bless some people that way. But that's not part of the atonement. He, he, he died and he expects us to die with him. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come to die. To die to self, it's a hard one to die to your dreams. By the way, but these are my dreams, but it's not about you. I know, but it's something I really want to do, but it's not about you. It's about the master. It's about the sovereign one. When does a slave come up to the master and said, hey, I, I have a dream. Will you do this for me? No, I don't. Well, you have to do it for me because it's my dream. You don't have a dream. The only dreams that we have are what God places in us when he calls us into a certain area, die to our reputation. Paul said he made himself of no reputation. Do you remember? The disciples, Paul said that the disciples were scum of the earth. They were the last people in the, the dregs of society in some triumphal possession. It would come through Rome. I mean, we're to die of our wants and die from our rights and die to our family and our friends and our future. He who loves his mother, father, brother, sister, husband, and wife more than me is not worthy of me. Die to our very lives, and we don't. And this is where the problem comes. This is where the, the whole issue is in the Christian life. Because we've been taught in our culture that you can do anything you want. That, that life is in your hands. We, we live under capitalism. We're an entrepreneurial kind of system. So you can create a business. You can make just as much money as you want. You can work hard. You can retire early. You can have a big house because those things are successful. And if somebody comes up and talks about you, you need to die to those dreams and give those dreams over to the Lord we're scared. We don't want to do that. Because what if God wants me to be poor? Well, there's no blessings in being poor. No, I don't want to be poor. I mean, I've been poor and I've had more than poor. And having more than poor is better. True? You know, there's no virtues in walking around in sackcloth and ashes all the time. But nevertheless, we refuse to even ask God to do that. I don't want God to do something in my life that's going to make me look stupid in front of my friends. Like what? Tell them about Jesus? Like say, I'm not going to go to that party, or I'm not going to date this girl, or I'm not going to um, get involved with these people because of my commitment to Christ. So your reputation is more important than him? Well, if I tell my wife about Jesus or even act like I'm, I'm a Christian in front of her, I mean, she's going to hate me and get mad at me. Oh, oh so our, our wife now is more important than obeying Christ? Our children, our family? When Christ calls a man... He calls us to come and die to ourselves. And I'm telling you, almost every problem I have ever had in my spiritual life where I really struggled with God all had to do with the fact that I refused to die to an area that he wanted me to. Now, he's a good God, is he not? And when I turn over a part of my life to him, he doesn't beat me with it. The fact is what he does is usually bless me in a way I never saw far greater than that. Does it ever happen to you? Let me just give you a couple verses here. In the scripture where Jesus said to people, follow me. I want you to watch this. In every single instance where he says, follow me, somebody, something has to die. Here's the, uh, here's the Matthew account. And I've got the Mark and the Luke passage underneath it to show you that in a lot of these accounts, there's, there's 
parallel passages in both Mark and Luke, and I'm just going to use Matthew. It says, and he said to them, this is Peter and Andrew, James and John, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so they had to die to something. They had to die to their business. They had to die to their way of life. They had to die to the way that they were trained. They had to die to a way they felt comfortable. No, Lord, I'm a fisherman. That's what I do. I'm an accountant. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a, I'm a, I, I work with my hands. This is who I am. I know, but I'm going to make you something different. And the first thing I want you to do is give up what you've spent your life doing because I have something far greater for you. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And like us, what we would do is we would say, okay, Lord, I will follow you, but I'm going to keep my house, my job, my car, my reputation, my wants, because I worked really hard for them, my education. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to give you an opportunity to speak into that area of my life. I'm going to handle all this and you can just bless me on Sunday. It's not what they did. It says, and they immediately left their nets and followed him and never went back until the account in John 21 in which Jesus rebuked them for that. The Luke passage says this, so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all. And we know from the account that in the boat with James and John was Zebedee, their father, and the hired help. Well, well, you understand, I'm an important guy in this town. I'm making some pretty good money. i got a business going here. I mean, we're, we're racking up. And, and uh, no, no it's, I have something better for you. That's all temporal. It all lasts. Something has to die. And so when he called his first disciples, they died to their own life, their old life, and they followed Christ. Jesus comes. He bids us to die. Now a certain scribe comes up to Jesus. And it says, then a certain scribe came to him and says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, we need to count the cost. It's not like you think. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You follow me, you're not going to have a place to lay your head either. He says, and another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let me just take care of something that just family related. And the idea here is, that the father was sick or the father had died. Let me go take care of my father. Let me cash in the inheritance. Let me make sure that I don't have to trust you with faith anymore because I got enough money to fund my little short-term mission trip. Let me do all of that. And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. None of that stuff matters anymore because you've been called to a deeper life. They followed You want to follow Jesus, you had to die to your own life, old life, and follow him. Matthew chapter 9. Here's Matthew sitting at the tax office. He was lucky enough to have one of the temple franchises to to collect taxes, and as soon as he forsook this and walked away, his income was ended. And not only that, but he was hated by the Jews. It's not like he could get a job somewhere, open up a store, people would buy from him. It says, and Jesus passed out from there, saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, same thing, follow me. And so he arose and followed him and never went back. He couldn't go back. Every one of these guys that came to Christ, it cost them something. It cost them their old life. Matthew died to his old life, and he followed Jesus. Here's the rich young ruler guy that wants to cash in. Now behold... One came to him and said, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So I said to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is, no one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said, in which ones? Okay, I'll give you the ones that are impossible to keep. I will basically keep the horizontal commandments. I won't even talk about the ones about loving God more than anything. Let's just talk about how you relate to everybody else. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are all horizontal commandments. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? You need to die to the thing that's most important to you. If you want to be perfect, complete, and whole, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Or you must die to yourself, give up what your security is in, what your pleasure in, what your reputation is tied up with, and follow me. But the young man, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I will not follow you, Christ, based on that. Now, I don't mind coming to church and asking you to come into my heart, and I don't mind tithing, and I don't mind leading a Bible study, and I don't mind you know, having a fish symbol on my car and singing really loud during the praise and worship time. But as far as dying to something that's so important to me that I'm identified with, it makes me who I am, not interested. Matthew 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Who doesn't love their father and mother, right? Unless you have this real dysfunctional kind of family. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I can understand maybe not loving your parents that much because maybe your parents were abusive to you, but unless you're an abusive guy, you've got kids that you love more than anything. But then he says, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The cross there, they all knew what it was. It was a, it was a physical instrument of painful, public, excruciating death. He who does not say, look, I am dead. I died on this cross. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I've died, Lord, and I'm hidden in you. I trust you with everything. I'm, I'm yielding my life to you. I have to die to my family to the people that mean the most to me, the things that I love the most, my parents, if you're a child, my children, if you're a parent, and myself, die. I want to find my life and make my life special and do the things that I want to do. Instead, I want to, I'm going to lose my life in this world for you and let you do all things through me. And just so that you'll know this didn't just apply to the disciples, look at this one. If anyone desires to come after me, do you desire to follow Jesus? Well, here's what he says. Let him deny himself. Wow. How do you deny yourself? Well, you say no to your wants. Say no to your rights. You say no to the things that are important to you. It's it's like living counterculture to what the church teaches and what our culture teaches today. That you literally say no to you, not my will, but your will. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. For nothing, it, it just, I, I just, I, I just want to trust you. Well, that may mean you'll never get a house. It means you may never get a spouse. You may always drive a 1973 Pento that all your friends will view you a loser. It could possibly happen. I don't care. I don't care. I belong to Christ. He talks to me, speaks to me, he directs me, and I, and I follow him. And I'm not amassing a treasure here that I'm going to leave to rust and thieves and 
and it'll just rot. Jesus called that man a fool. Instead, I'm going to amass a treasure in heaven where nothing can be taken away from me by yielding and dying to him. If anyone desires to come after me, he must, one, deny himself. How do you do that? Number two, take up your cross, which is that instrument of death. And number three, follow me. It doesn't say follow me first and these things will follow. This is an indication of actually following and yielding to Christ, following his example. For whoever desires to save his life, to make something of his life, to be somebody and be important, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. God, I don't understand that living in America. I mean, it makes no sense at all. He knew that. For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul or reputation or your own earthly desires? None. There's another account here where Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice. And Christ knows Gnosko. He chooses. He knows them experientially. They are his. And he knows them. And they follow him. His sheep follow him. Now, Jesus talked about what it means to follow him. And, and I realized that what we've done, what I have done, I've been guilty of this myself, is, is I made the gospel of Christ and the discipleship of Christ somewhat painless. Yeah, I mean, you can, I mean, what does it take to follow Christ today to be considered a Christian? Well, you, you say a prayer, you, uh, you, you, you know, you get a, baptized, you come to church occasionally, you don't have to be involved, you just have to sit and participate. Uh, you, you know, you, you pay for the services by dropping a tithe in there, but it doesn't have to be a tithe, because most Christians don't tithe. They just, you know, put a tip in there, like you're going to tip the lady at the restaurant. And our culture says that you're a believer in Christ. Our culture says that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, because we've lowered the bar so low. And if somebody is foolish enough to actually do what Jesus does, be willing to forsake their entire life to follow him, we say that person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good anymore. Know what I mean? First time I ever heard about somebody doing this was Keith Green. And I know I've shared this with you before. He was an unbelievably talented, gifted, anointed Christian singer back in my generation. Um, and uh, he was going around and he, he had a record deal with uh, Sparrow Records at that time. And, and he didn't like the fact that people were having to pay for his records. And so he... Uh, <laughs> He asked Sparrow Records if they could, if he could give away his records for free. And, of course, they said, no. I mean, you may be a Christian artist, but we're a Christian business, and we have to make money on this kind of stuff. So they compromised, and his albums were now for just what you were willing to pay. And I remember when I first got saved, I didn't know anything about Christ. I didn't know anything about anything, but I, I loved music. And so I went to this place in Atlanta called the Christian Armory. Really great name for a Christian music store. Christian Army, and I went in there, and I walked up to the guy, and I said, listen, I need some Christian music. Well, what kind do you like? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well, what kind of music do you listen to? I listen to Def Leppard. Well, why don't you try, um, why don't you try uh, Petra? I listen, to, um, I listen to Phil Collins and Genesis. Well, why don't you try Keith Green? Okay, so I go over and I'm flipping through these albums back when they were really albums. You ever seen those before? You know, albums. And there's a sticker on there for whatever you want to pay for this. And then Keith Green all of a sudden decided that it's wrong for him to uh, charge 
for a concert ticket. I mean, the fact is, if this is a worship time, a worship time should have a price tag on worship. The fact is, it's, it, should, it should be free. Uh, and so Keith Green wouldn't charge any more for concerts. Well, the concert promoters, of course, didn't want to promote him and have him come in because they weren't making any money like they do today, where you bring in a band like uh, Third Day. And when I was uh, doing concerts at 91.9, I mean, I got 60 grand for a night. A little on the same side, isn't it? Uh, but that's just what that's just what happens. And and um, and so in the middle of all that, Keith Green says, you know what? All my music, all my life has been for me. And uh, although it's all tied up in music, he says, I'm not going to play the piano or pick up another instrument or write another song until God tells me to. And he dropped out of music and everybody, including me, with that's just crazy. That's your ministry. That's your gift. That's what God's called you to do. No, I'm not going to do it. And his wife testified that for six months, he just went around helping people and ministering to people and had a lot of people living with him at that time and, um, you know, kind of helping him through some rough times. And about six months later, she heard him playing a piano again and realized that God had gave him back his gift. But he was willing to die to himself for the one thing that defined him and the one thing that brought God the most glory. And I'm not willing to deny myself for stuff that doesn't bring God glory. You know what I mean? Because I'm so afraid he's going to take something away from me that I really like or I really enjoy. And it's not what it means to follow Christ at all. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. Do you follow Jesus? Well, yeah, I, I do. Some of the time, some of the time I don't. I kind of try. I follow Jesus when it's easy for me, when it's kind of hard for me, then I kind of bail out. Then I really mess up and I repent and he forgives me. And, you know, it's the same old cycle. Well, have you died to yourself? In some areas I have. I've usually died to myself in areas that I don't really care about. But areas that are important to me, I have not died to myself because I'm afraid. Of what? I'm afraid I'm going to be poor. And that's, that's, a, that's a terrible thing in our culture. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to be a nobody. That's even a worse terrible thing in our culture. I'm afraid that you know, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. I'm never going to have a house. I'm never going to live as well as my parents lived. The people are going to think I'm an idiot or a fool. I'm afraid that God's going to send me on the mission field, that God's going to do something in my life that will bring him glory that I really don't want to. So I'm going to hold on to this kind of apathetic kind of life that most of the church suffers with today because we don't really know what it means to follow Jesus. Doesn't mean that he doesn't mean you have to quit your job, but you have to be willing to quit your job. Doesn't mean that you have to go on the mission field, but you have to be willing to go on the mission field. It doesn't mean that anything you offer him, he's going to take away from you, but you have to be willing to give the king the area of your life that belongs to him. Have you died to yourself? If I asked you this, you'd probably go, Well, yeah, I you know, I used to, I used to quote justice. I used to play M-rated video games and I did a video and I quit doing that because it brings no glory to the Lord. It's just a waste of time, a waste of breath, a waste of my life. And, and I don't want to do that anymore. Okay. All right. Did, uh, can others tell that you've given that up? And, and if so, are there other areas in your life that you have? No, I, I mean, I gave that life up, but there's these other areas that I haven't because they're important to me. They're, they're stuff that I want to do. Isn't that amazing? I mean, especially when we look at the fact that um, that following Jesus is a whole lot more than what we've been told. It means an absolute 
abject surrender to him. Now, it may be that your desire is not to bear a lot of his fruit. I know we say we want to, but somehow, you know, I say I want to lose weight, but obviously I don't because if I did, I would. So that's just words. It's just, it's just healthy words. You know, I'm going to start eating better and losing weight and exercise because everybody says, amen, brother. That's, that's what we're all supposed to do. But obviously, it's not what I want to do, not what I really care about. Otherwise, I would be doing it. Same thing applies to when it comes to spiritual life. You know, I want to bear a lot of his fruit. Okay. I mean, get every, I mean to, to be a Christian is say, I, I really, I just want to have like a barren branch. You know, like a couple little shriveled up grapes. Nobody says that because then we get this negative peer pressure from other Christians where you must be a sloth. But the fact is, our lives don't indicate that what we verbally say with our mouth is maybe what we want to do. I want to bear a lot of his fruit, tons of his fruit. Well, so how are you preparing to do that? What areas of your life are you removing in order to allow that to happen? What areas of your life are you trusting with him? Well, not much, because I have these needs. Well, whose job is it to meet those needs? Well, it's been mine, and I've done it really poorly, but I know it belongs to him, yet I'm afraid to trust him to meet those needs. And when he says, follow me, it means they left everything and followed him. Now, Does that mean that every Christian can't have a house? No, because the early church met in people's houses. Does it mean that every Christian has to be poor? No, because there was a lot of people that supported Paul and his mission trips out of his abundance. Does that mean every Christian has to become a preacher? No, God didn't call everybody to do that. But you have to be willing, like Keith Green wants to surrender it all to him. And then when he gives it back to you, it's yours. And there's there's no shame, there's no... There's no divided loyalty because it becomes an incredible blessing. Make sense? So I'm just asking you to go home tonight and look at your life, look at every aspect of your life, and see if there's areas in your life that you're not following him, where he is Lord and you are servant, that he is God and you are not, and surrender those to him and watch if he will not pour out a blessing on you that you can't even imagine. Amen? Let me pray.